All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Brad McMahon. I am the lead pastor here at Adventure, uh, and we are excited to have so many folks joining us here this morning. We are continuing this morning in a series we've been in for about a month and a half uh, called Man Up, right, where we are specifically speaking to men. And I had someone ask me last week, why are you doing that? Like, that's, that's interesting. It's unique to see a church that's going to have a, a series that's kind of directed towards and aimed towards men with everybody in the room. How come you're not doing that like in men's ministry or at a men's conference, something like that? that. And the reason is this, everybody's connected to everybody, right? So when we have a conversation with men, with everybody in the room, there are people that are connected to men. They're connected in their lives, whether you are married to a guy, right? Whether you are, uh, you work with them, like you go to school, right? So that when we talk, when we speak to men, everybody's connected, right? We're connected in those relationships. And so um, when we do that, we're talking about kind of the four chambers of the heart and, and the hearts of men, right? And for men to step into that space to be the men that, that God designed us to be, to be the men that God intended us to be when he gave us roles, responsibilities, and expectations. And it really looks like this, king, warrior, wise man, and lover, right? Those are kind of the four, four chambers in the hearts of men that we are trying to repair and build up uh, in this place. And so a few weeks ago, um, before we started this, kind of our preaching team, we got together and we were talking about each week. And, and Patrick Garcia, who preaches here, right, connected me with, with, with Bob Russell about a month or so prior. And I just sat there at lunch where we do our preaching team meetings at Chipotle um, and said, hey, do you think Bob would preach a week? And Patrick goes, I don't know. I'll ask him. And then about, you know, an hour later, I get a text message. says, Bob said, put him down for March 12th. And I went, come on. Like, you can't be serious, right? And then I get, you know, I'm like, I'm like whatever, dude, you're just messing with me. And then I get this, I get, then I get an email from, from Bob Russell, and I'm like, I mean, Patrick and Matt are going to great lengths here to make it, make it appear like Bob said he was going to, he would come. And so I, I, I played it straight, I emailed back, I said, sure, we'd love to have you, and it, sure enough, it was him, which is, I'm glad I didn't go like, stop it, right? Um, so I'm really, really excited this morning to have Bob Russell join us. Uh, so give a warm adventure welcome to Bob Russell. Good morning, and thank you, Brad, for inviting me. Uh, I've, I've heard that Brad has a reputation of preaching very short sermons, <laughs> so you know, I'm glad to follow a guy like that. Thank you. When Brad asked me, he asked me to preach on Jesus' war with Satan, as it's recorded in Luke, the fourth chapter, where Jesus battled temptation. Now, to be honest with you, I normally don't accept an invitation to speak if I don't have a road sermon that goes along with the requested topic, because at my age, I don't like the pressure of having to write new material, and I want to be able to share what I think as my best stuff. <laughs> However, even though I don't have a tested, familiar sermon on Luke 4, I decided to accept Brad's invitation because this is a subject I know something about. I have been tempted so much in my life, I consider myself an expert on temptation. Unlike Jesus, however, I haven't always emerged victorious. I'll give you an example. About 20 years ago, I wrote a book about Southeast Christian Church entitled When God Builds a Church. It did pretty well in Christian circles. But the trouble with that book was another preacher, I can't remember his name, 
But he wrote a book about his church about the same time called The Purpose Driven Church. And uh, a couple of years later, I read a newspaper headline that said, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Church sells 6 million copies. And I was tempted to be envious. And I thought, Lord, our church is as big as Saddleback Church. My book's half as good. I'd, I'd take 3 million copies. <laughs> and then I thought, how silly is that? God had blessed my ministry so far beyond what I ever thought or imagined. And here I am being envious of somebody who has more. I thought when I became a preacher, I wouldn't be tempted as much as I am. But I have learned that Satan is relentless. He will tempt us regardless of occupation or age. I've also observed that people are tempted in different areas. What tempts you may not tempt somebody else. My friend Ken Mahanis told about a woman who was tempted to gluttony. She was gaining weight. And so she cut out a picture of a Victoria's Secret model and pasted it on the refrigerator. And every time she was tempted to go get another snack, she would see that picture of the model she wanted to become, and she would back off. And it worked. She lost 10 pounds in two months. However, her husband gained 10 pounds <laughs> at the same time. <clears throat> you see, one is tempted to gluttony. Another is tempted to lust. One is tempted to envy. Another is tempted to laziness. One is tempted by the opposite sex. Some people have same-sex attraction. I suspect that everybody in this room right now knows what it is to be tempted. So let's be encouraged by the fact that Jesus was tempted also. You know, we sometimes think that Jesus was the Son of God and he wasn't tempted by evil. He didn't have to struggle with temptation. But the phrase that Jesus used the most often to describe himself was not Son of God. The phrase he used most often to describe himself was Son of Man. The Son of Man comes to seek and save those who are lost. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, talks about the fact that Jesus is fully man and fully God at the same time. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was not a Teflon Messiah. He wasn't exempt from human struggles. He is the perfect model for men today and that he overcame temptation. Jesus always won the victory even though he was tempted. So he's the only model really worth following if we're to become the men that God wants us to be or if we're to become the women that God wants us to be. So let's look at Luke 4. And start reading with verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Now keep in mind, he'd just been baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit had descended upon him like a dove. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now the Spirit's leading him, but he's going to be tempted. Just because you're tempted doesn't mean you're outside the will of God. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them... He was hungry. I'm not a very good faster. I, I wish I were better. The longest I've ever gone without food for the purpose of spiritual concentration is 48 hours. And I was grouchy and weak and very hungry and hard to live with. Jesus went 40 days 
without food. This is one of hundreds of ways that he's so much stronger than I am. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Mark Twain once said, I'd like to meet the devil. Anybody who could hold the allegiance of nine-tenths of the world's population for such a long period of time must be a highly interesting and fascinating person. Well, Jesus met the devil. Now, what form Satan came to him, we're not told. I don't think he came to him as a snake. I don't think he came to him in a red suit with horns. He must have been very winsome. My personal belief is that he wasn't visible because Jesus is tempted just as we are. And this is a spiritual battle between Jesus and the devil took place in his soul. And he says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, some commentators suggest that Jesus at the beginning of his ministry is determining the direction of his ministry. And that Satan is saying to him, if you want to get the world to follow you, you know what it's like to be hungry, give them free bread. They will follow anybody who provides free things. That's the way uh, dictators rise to power. That's the way politicians get their votes. Give them free health care. Give them free phones. Give them free tuition. They'll, they'll vote for you. They'll follow you. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. I, I think this is more personal. I think this is a temptation for Jesus to satisfy his physical appetite apart from God's will. Satan comes to him at his most vulnerable point. That's the way he comes to us. He said, Jesus, you're really hungry? Well, you're going to starve to death if you wait for your heavenly father to provide for you. He's nowhere in sight. Just turn these stones into bread. You've got the power to do that. Use your supernatural power to satisfy your physical desires in your time. And the tempter uses the same basic scheme with us. He whispers, look, you're single, and you've got a strong sexual appetite, and you're starving to death, and there's no marriage prospect in sight. Just fulfill your hunger outside of God's will. Or you're in a loveless marriage. You're hungry for romance. You want an in-depth relationship. You can get it now. Just meet somebody on a chat room who really understands. Or find Google some pornographic site that can fulfill your needs. To others, he will say, you're craving inner peace. You're really hungry for tranquility. If you take God's route of prayer and Bible reading, that's going to take you a long time. I can give it to you instantly. Just take this pill. Just drink this drink. Just use this needle, and you can know peace in seconds. Or he may whisper to you, you wait for your money to accumulate interest over time. It's going to take a lot of time for you to, to do it that way. Why Play the lottery. Somebody's going to win. Might as well be you. Now, i got to be honest with you. I've never been tempted to play the lottery. Now, I, when that mega jackpot gets up to $40 million, I do twitch a little when I get in, in the service station. I'm more tempted to, I am tempted to gamble on sports because I know something about sports. And there's some skill. But I don't because that's not a good look for preachers and a lot of other reasons, not a good resource of money. But I was at a party about a month ago in Florida. Uh, some friends of ours had a bean supper, a soup supper at their club and they asked us to go and we went but they had like door prizes for everybody and there were some significant door prizes $50 gift certificate to Outback and some things like that and I didn't win anything but it came to the last number 
And my number was called, and there's only one gift left. And it was a lottery tree. It was a little ugly looking twig of about a foot and a half. And it had all these lottery tickets hanging off of it. And everybody's taking a picture of me, the preacher, walking out with a lottery <laughs> tree. And I got, I got a little excited about this because I had been a lot of, I thought, maybe I could win that 20 million mega lottery in, in Florida. So my wife and I got back in the condo. We, took, we scratched off for about 20 minutes, and our total earnings were $12. $12. You know, you see those ads when they win the lottery. They're just so happy, and they're embracing. I didn't even get an embrace for $12. And I thought, what a ripoff, you know. We counted, and somebody had purchased 70-some dollars worth of lottery tickets, and we got $12. What a, what a letdown. Satan makes these promises of bread, but you come up empty. And Jesus knew that. That's why he resisted this temptation. Verse 4, the Son of, of God answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus is saying, look, Satan, there's something more important than physical food, and that is my spiritual relationship with my heavenly Father. I'm going to accept that rather than temporary physical gratification. I'll wait on him. Now, in John the 6th chapter, Jesus did give people free bread, didn't he? 5,000 people, they were hungry. Jesus took five loaves, two fish, and fed them all. And there were plenty left over. They were satisfied. You know what happened the next day? The next day, the crowd swelled, and they came asking if Jesus would feed them breakfast. He said, you know, Moses fed people manna every day. Are you willing to feed us every day? And Jesus said, no, I'm not a bread Messiah here. The bread that I want to give you is the bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever believes in me will never be hungry. Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty. And John 6, 6 says, from that time forth, many of the disciples walked away and walked no more with him. And Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, will you also go away? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom should we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Where are you going to go for the bread of life? Where are you going to go for something that satisfies? Washington, D.C.? Frankfurt? Wall Street? Sports Arena in Nashville? Yum Center? All the bread of this world will not fill you. Only Jesus offers eternal life. Only he can satisfy that hunger of the soul. Proverbs 13, 25 says, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need, always wanting more. So Jesus said, not live by bread alone. Verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him all in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anybody I want to. If you wor worship me, it will all be yours. Now, this is a temptation to gain wealth by compromising moral values. He's saying, look, Jesus, you are embarrassingly poor for a potential Messiah. You don't own a home. You have nowhere to lay your head. You have no means of transportation. You're going to have to walk Everywhere you go. You have no savings. When taxes come due, you're going to have to go fishing. As a son of God, you deserve to live in luxury. Just bow down and worship me for a little bit, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, and you live in splendor. 
Now, this seems a little presumptuous of Satan, don't you think? Saying, the world belongs to me. I can give it to anybody I want to. Oh, the world belongs to God. Well, the Bible does say Satan temporarily is the prince of this world. And he can temporarily dish segments of it out to people. Jezebel in the Old Testament, wicked woman, very rich, lived in luxury. Judas Iscariot in the New Testament sold his soul to the devil, and for a brief period of time he had 30 extra silver coins in his pocket. And that's the way Satan tempts us. I'll give you all the things of this world if you just compromise a little. Just bow down and worship me. Several years ago, uh, a wise investor gave me a tip on a hot stock. He said, you invest money in this stock, I guarantee you it'll double in six months. Well, I thought I was tempted to do that, but I looked up what the stock was, and the C in the call letters of the stock stood for cannabis. It was a stock in distributing marijuana. And I, I, I thought, I, I, I don't think I ought to be making money off a substance that's going to do so much harm. Even though it's legal, I, I'm, I don't think I'm going to invest in that. Six months later, I looked, it had tripled. Wish I hadn't looked. <laughs> Satan whispers you, don't worry about the source of your money. Don't tell the whole truth about the product. You'll strike it rich. Don't worry if you have to exploit the poor, neglect your family. If you have to deceive customers a little bit, or maybe to work in this restaurant, you have to dress a little more provocatively. Don't worry, you've got a partner with unbelievers. Don't worry. Put your kid in that, that traveling team. He's such a good athlete. Yeah, you have to skip Sunday but uh, for a while, but you he, get a scholarship. It'll be worth it. You come back later. Just bow down and worship me for a little, and I'll give you all the kingdoms in their splendor. Now, the Son of Man is tempted to strike a compromise with Satan to live in luxury, but the Son of God responds in verse 8, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus chose the way of poverty for his ministry. Second uh, Corinthians 8 9 says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet you're, for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We know Jesus never owned a car, never owned a house, never owned a boat. He never had any inside plumbing, never had running water, never owned a phone. The only thing of value that he owned was this seamless robe that somebody had given to him, and he had to leave that behind at the cross. So he had to borrow a boat to preach from, had to borrow a coin to use as an illustration. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into town. He had to borrow a room to conduct the Last Supper. Even had to borrow a burial plot, which is only going to be used for three days. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not e consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on himself the very nature of a servant, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Warren Wearsby said, God's pattern is to start with suffering and end in glory. 
Satan's pattern is to start with glory and end in suffering. Verse 9. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, this is a spiritual battle between two supernatural beings, and so it just transported him to the temple in an instant. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, notice something here. The devil quotes the Bible. He, he lifts a verse and spins it, Psalm 91, 12, about the angels catching you. Don't get too enamored with false teachers who will quote Scripture. And they will say, you know, God wants you to be wealthy because the, the Bible says those who trust the Lord will prosper. God wants you to be healthy because the Bible says by his wounds we are healed. God wants you never to confront anybody, uh, never to get angry about anything because we're to tolerate everything. The Bible says don't judge. Satan masquerades as an angel of light so cleverly that he can deceive even the elect with Scripture. But the Bible says, 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, you study to show yourself approved unto God so that you can rightly handle the word of truth. You know when he's quoting it out of context so that he does not, you're, you're not unaware, unaware of Satan's schemes. Now, this is a temptation for Jesus to achieve status by dazzling the crowd with the dramatic. Satan reasons, look, Jesus, you take this route of being an itinerant preacher and asking people to deny themselves and follow you. You'll get a handful of people, but not very many. But if you want to really get a crowd, Jesus, you perform the spectacular because people are drawn to the dramatic. They'll come out to see a daredevil who walks a tightrope between two buildings in Manhattan or somebody who bungee jumps, some exhibitionist who jump, bungee jumps over Niagara Falls or something. And here's what you do, Jesus. You jump off this temple, and it is written, the angels will swoop down and catch you. And when the people see that, they're going to be impressed. You perform that act about once a day for two weeks. I guarantee you, you're going to have a throng of people down there. You'll have them in the palm of your hand. And that's kind of what Satan does to us, isn't it? He whispers in the ear of a college freshman, look, you, you be a straight student and a dedicated student you're going to be ignored. You're going to be alone. You want to get noticed? You be the life of the party at school. You drink more than anybody. You be a louder comedian. You, you wear the, the most risque clothing. And then you'll have friends. Now, it is a little dangerous, but look, the angels will catch you. You can come back to God later. Or he whispers to young couples, uh, you want to get respect of your peers? Well, you go ahead and buy that house in that subdivision you can't afford, and you go ahead and join the country club, and you, you wear the expensive jewelry. You make a big splash, and you can pay for it later. It is a little risky, but you follow me a little bit, and I'll give you these things. I think he even whispers to preachers, look, if you just preach the Bible, you're going to get a handful of people, but if you want to get a crowd, it's got to be more dramatic than that. Use edgy movie clips more often. Interview a transgender. Sip a beer while you're preaching. Enter stage left on a Harley. Somehow get attention of people. 
And then once you get a crowd, then you can tell them about the gospel. Well, Jesus resisted the temptation for this superficial status. In verse 12, he answers, it says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, faith does involve taking a risk on occasion. If God commands it, come step out of the boat and walk to me. But there's a fine line between faith and presumption sometimes. There's a fine line between seeking to influence people for God and seeking to impress people for yourself. Remember toward the end of his ministry, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, if you're really the son of God, we want you to prove it. Show us some sign in the sky. We've seen these little miracles you do down here with sick people. Let's see something really. If you're God, let's do something with the moon or the stars. Remember what Jesus said? He said an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. There will be no more signs given except that of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be three days in the heart of the earth. And if the resurrection isn't enough to convince you, then you're beyond hope. You see, Jesus, the son of man, was tempted to dazzle people with the dramatic. But the son of God chose the path that led to the cross where he died alone. And look at verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him forever. Oh, that's not what it says. He left him how? <clears throat> this is a live audience, isn't it, out there? <clears throat> he left him for the three of you. Thank you. <clears throat> so Jesus is tempted just as we are, not just once, not just at the beginning of his ministry, but all through his ministry, Satan came back again and again. You remember toward the end of his ministry when he told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die? And, and Simon Peter said, not so, Lord. And Satan said to, to, or Jesus said to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Even then he's tempted to evade the cross. Or in the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, Father, if it be possible, let, for any other way, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, not my will, but thine be done. Remember at the end of the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when Jesus surrenders his will to the will of the Father, and he's walking out of Gethsemane, and a snake slithers across his path, and Jesus stomps on that snake and kills it, stomp it on the head. That was symbolic of the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 when God cursed the, the devil and said, now you're going gonna to bruise his heel crucifixion but he's going to crush your head he's going to destroy you by what he does now there are three simple lessons i'd like for you to take home from this story <clears throat> not very deep but very needed number one jesus was tempted to do evil and we will be too jesus is the perfect son of god and yet he was tempted that means we will never become so spiritual in our lives that we won't find evil appealing sometimes. The Bible says that we are tempted by three different sources, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, Jesus met the devil face on. I've never met the devil. The devil is not omnipotent. He's not everywhere. But I have to battle the world sometimes, peer pressure. Don't say that. Somebody's going to be offended. Or go ahead and say that because you're angry. You want to please the world. But most of our temptation, I think, comes from our own carnal desires. In Romans 7, 18, Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my sinful nature, there dwells no good thing. 
we all have two natures within us. On the one hand, we're created in the image of God and we instinctively want to do good things. That's why you're here today, because you're calling out for God in your nature. But we also have a carnal nature. We're polluted by the sin of Adam and we find evil attractive. We gravitate to evil. J. Wallace Hamilton calls horns and halos in human nature. The Bible calls it the battle between the flesh and the spirit that goes on all the time. Galatians 5, 16 through 18 says, Live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want a lot of temptation comes from within this carnal nature i'm a minister and i still battle that carnal nature i told you at the beginning of this sermon i was envy and did you hear me say at the beginning i want to share what is my best material you know what that is ego pride enters in I'm 79 years old, and I confess to you, I still battle lust. That's 79. I thought when you got old, that would go away. <laughs> I, I watch TV program, and the sun gets a little raunchy, so I think I'll watch this. <laughs> One younger preacher asked an older preacher, when will I get to the age where the flesh will no longer appeal to me? And the old preacher said, son, I wouldn't trust myself till I've been dead for three days. <laughs> Now, people say, I thought when we became a Christian, the, the, the old nature was crucified with Christ. Well, crucifixion is a long, painful process. And we battle. That's why Jesus said, you've got to take up your cross every day to follow me. Jesus was tempted. We're tempted too. Craig Massey wrote, two natures beat within my breast. One is foul, the other blessed. The one I love, the one I hate. But the one I feed will dominate. Here's a second lesson. Jesus overcame temptation, and we can do it too. Jesus was tempted, yet he was without sin. That's why he's worth following. He's the only man who conquered it every time. This is an important point, by the way, because I see a lot of churches today that leave the impression that we're helpless in the face of evil. We can't overcome it. I read a church website the other day that promoted itself by saying we're a bunch of people who have lied, cheated, judged and proven we're imperfect so we built a church home where everyone can come as they are that sounds appealing but there's something missing in that appeal, what is it? there's no promise of transformation it's just saying well, we're a bunch of people who gather because we're saved by grace and we're helpless and we're a mess and nothing's going to change. I like what your church website says about you. We create opportunities for people to come as they are and become all that the Lord desires them to be. The hope of, of change. Listen to what Romans the 6th chapter says, beginning with verse 1. What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Should we go on sleeping around, dropping the F-bomb at ball games, getting drunk at parties and divorcing our mates and lying at work and neglecting to pay our bills and say, we're just a bunch of sinners saved by grace? What's he say? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him 
through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what? New life. If we've been united with him in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with it. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now this is not saying that the church was made up of people who were perfect. We're sinners. It's not saying that we're sinless. But it is saying as we grow in Christ we should sin less and less. Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, now I don't condemn you but now you go and sin no more peter marshall once prayed before the u.s senate lord we thank you that we can come to you just as we are but remind us today that we dare not leave as we came i am of the opinion that the church of the future that is going to make a difference that's going to influence the world is not going to be a church that just says we're all unholy but a contrasting church the world doesn't need a comfortable church the world needs a contrasting church. The world needs to see, hey, these people forgive, and these people are not perfect, but they are growing in Christ and reflecting his glory. 1 John 5, 4 says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Jesus conquered the temptation, and the more we grow in Christ, the more victorious we should be. One other lesson. Jesus overcame temptation by quoting God's word, and we should too. Did you notice every temptation Jesus responded by quoting scripture? It is written, man doesn't live by bread alone. It is written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, don't worship anyone except the Lord your God. Now, quoting the Bible is not a magic potion to scare the devil away. But when you fill your mind with scripture, when your life is saturated with the word of God, you have the inner resources to withstand the external pressures that come upon you. There's a young man in this city that years ago, in his late teens, he got addicted to pornography. Good Christian young man, grew up in a Christian home, loved the Lord, but he got into the wrong website and he found his carnal nature going back and back to it that he couldn't overcome. A mentor of him, of his reminded him of Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. So he persuaded him to try to counter pornography by just memorizing scripture, filling his mind with the things of God. And he said, here's a passage I'd like for you to memorize. And it's from Romans 8, verses 4 through 8. Here's what it says. Do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. Those who live according to the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So he began to try to memorize those five verses. And as he memorized them, he began to have more and more victory over his temptation to porn. And he was so impressed that memorizing Scripture helped him. He went on to memorize the entire eighth chapter of Romans. 
big section. And he was so victorious, he, eventually he memorized the entire book of Romans. 16 chapters, the longest letter in the New Testament. He was experienced so much victory, he memorized the Sermon on the Mount. Then he might memorize the book of James. You say, I look at him, say, uh, quote James 3. Just picks up and quotes it. Now he's memorizing the book of Hebrews a decade and a half later. And he will look you in the eye and say, the way I overcame that addiction, the way I overcame that temptation was I memorized Scripture. Now, every day we face a choice. Do we do what the carnal nature wants us to do and what we feel like doing, or do we do what God commands? And the lesson of Jesus' temptation is that we say, this is what God has said in his word, and I'm going to do it regardless of how strong the appeal is, regardless of how I feel at the moment. William James, father of modern psychology, said, if you act the way you wish you felt, you'll eventually feel the way you act. In other words, it's a lot easier to act yourself into a way of feeling than to feel yourself into a way of acting. If I would have done just what I always wanted to do, I would have never lasted 40 years at Southeast Christian Church as their preacher because there were some mornings that I woke up on Sunday morning and I didn't feel like going to church. You know what I mean? Time change Sunday. I felt like this recently, grabbing the phone beside the bed, calling Dave Stone, my associate, and say, Dave, you've always wanted to preach more. you got a chance in about an hour and a half. Good luck. <laughs> but I never did. You know why? Because I'm commanded in Scripture, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So even though I don't feel like it, I get up and go to church. And that morning, I don't feel like greeting anybody. Just go in the office and hide and wait till it's time to preach. But I go ahead and smile and shake people's hands because I'm commanded in Scripture, be kind one to another. And those mornings church started, I didn't feel like singing. I felt like complaining. How many times are you going to sing that same song over and over again? It's too <laughs> loud. But I went ahead and sang anyway because the Bible commands me, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And when it's time for me to preach, there were sometimes I didn't feel like preaching. I felt like just getting in the pulpit and looking back at people the way they'd looked at me for 50 years. <laughs> But I never did. You know why? Because the Bible commands us, preach the word in season and out of season. And you know what I discovered? I discovered when I went to church when I didn't feel like it and sang and greeted people when I didn't feel like it and preached when I didn't feel like it, by 2.30 in the afternoon, I felt a whole lot better than if I'd stayed home in bed. Jesus said, you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. You do what you feel like doing, you're going to lose it. You lose yourself. You deny yourself for my sake and the gospels, and you'll find it. And that's why Jesus said, Satan, get behind me. In the very last hours, he stood on trial for his life, and the high priest said to him, Are you really the Son of God? If so, tell us. And Jesus must have been tempted to keep silent. They didn't have enough on him to convict him. He could have pled the fifth. But he looked the high priest in the eye and said, yes, it is as you say, and you're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. And the high priest rent his garment and said, that's all we need. This is blasphemy. Put him to death. 
And the Son of God went to the cross, a perfect, sinless sacrifice on our behalf. And the Son of God, three days later, came back victorious from the grave. And he said, because I live, you can live also. And for everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Let's pray. Father, first, would you forgive us for those many times when we've, we've resist, failed to resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. Forgive us for the many times that we fall short of the standard of Jesus Christ. But thank you for that perfect standard. Thank you for his perfect model. May we follow in his steps. May we grow to be more and more like him. But we thank you most of all that even though we fall short, he was perfect. And he went to the cross on our behalf as an atonement for our sins. Thank you for your grace. Help us to grow. 